Joseph Campbell said that a good life is one hero journey after another. Over and over again, you're called to the realm of adventure. You're called to new horizons. Each time there's the same problem. Do I dare? And then if you do dare, the dangers are there. And the help also. In the fulfillment or the fiasco. My 50th lap around the sun has caused me to feel introspective. And although I'm no hero, this is my podcast. And since most people enjoy an origin story, I'll invite you to jump into mine. My name is Phil Goodrich, and this is A Surfer's Path, Episode 6. It was the afternoon of my 10th birthday on April 19th, 1981. I was happily playing by myself on the front porch of our house. I was lost in a world where Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader action figures battled on top of a skateboard. I had set up a labyrinth of dominoes that snaked down the step and wound around plastic army men, Legos, and Lincoln logs. I rolled the skateboard into the first domino and watched with simplistic fascination as my creations toppled. When the last domino fell, it coincided with the arrival of my father, who had just got home from work. He was an engineer at NASA, and as usual, when he got home, I was filled with excitement and happiness, but also mixed with just a slight edge of healthy fear. He was smiling on that day as he wished me a happy birthday and stepped over the mess that I had created. He sat down next to me on the bright green AstroTurf step and said a few words that would change my life. Would you like to start surfing, son? There was no hesitation when I answered, yes. It seemed like a foregone conclusion because I already loved skateboarding and I admired the older kids in the neighborhood that pedaled their bicycles past our house carrying brightly colored single fin surfboards. My dad was definitely not a surfer, but he had a friend at NASA who was. And so the three of us set out to find me a board. We settled on a five-foot purple and white twin fin with a label that said, Surfboards by Dawn. My dad's friend said that a single fin would be better to learn on, so my dad poured boat resin into the twin fin boxes, and with the leftover mix, he glassed on a large single fin between the two slots. I didn't know the difference, and I was ecstatic about owning a surfboard. I don't remember my first wave or anything else about the learning process. I only remember feelings of freedom, creativity, and determination. There's something undeniable in the seawater of Central Florida that produces talented surfers. Despite the lack of quality conditions, you could walk to the end of any beach access street on the Space Coast and find a neighborhood clique of above average wave riders. Our street was no exception. Coral Way was in Indy Atlantic, which was in the middle between Cocoa Beach to the north and Sebastian Inlet to the south. Our house was exactly one half mile from the sand, and on the way east to the beach, Coral Way was crossed with descending cul-de-sacs named after the planets of our solar system, starting with Uranus, Neptune, Saturn, Jupiter, Mars, Venus, and Mercury. I reckon the city planners left out Earth because Earth was all around us, and Pluto, 
because Pluto always seems to get left out. After Mercury Court, there was A1A, which was a four-lane road with a high speed limit, and I was expressly forbidden to cross that street without my parents. This became a barrier and a source of embarrassment for a few years, but it was worth waiting for my mom or dad, because surfing had become the sun, moon, and stars of my existence by the age of 13. If you were alive in the early 80s, you would remember that MTV was in its infancy. Hair metal glam rock was all the rage for me and my crew. Rat and Twisted Sister were the first two albums that I secretly purchased. The reason I had to hide my musical taste from my parents is because while I was becoming obsessed with surfing and glam rock, my father had set out on a spiritual quest. He started with Buddhism, yoga and meditation, and eventually ended up with Christianity. It wasn't the Catholic or Protestant variety. It was the full-on, charismatic, born-again Christian evangelical variety. This was during the height of the satanic panic outbreak. The nightly news was doing exposés about dungeons and dragons or satanic graffiti symbolism. Rumors of perverse, sexual, ritualistic abuse were rampant, and fear gripped many communities. At first, I wasn't having any of my father's religion, but he laid down the law, and I started attending their church. But whenever they left me alone, I would take out my records and tiptoe to the turntable and rock out. My dad had recently bought my mother a top-of-the-line stereo system for Christmas. The speakers looked like cabinets and took up a good part of the living room. One afternoon when I was sure that I was alone, I took out my Twisted Sister album and I cranked up the volume. As I was enjoying a blissful headbanging and air guitar session, I looked over and noticed that my father's prized pet cockatiel and her cage had been moved directly in front of the speaker. His bird's name was Mercy, and I realized with horror that rock music would have no mercy on that animal. As the song, We're Not Gonna Take It, came to an end, I heard a slight thud. In slow motion, I walked over to the cage and discovered the lifeless body of mercy at the bottom of the cage. I was filled with a type of visceral fear and guilt that is unique to 13-year-old boys. Up until that moment, I had no experience with death, and I began to panic. It felt traumatic to be responsible for killing a small creature, and especially one that my father was quite fond of. I tried to prop up Mercy to make it look as though she were eating from the plastic tray, but it was a pathetic effort. In the panic of the moment, I took the record sleeves and ran to my bedroom and returned them to their hiding place. I forgot the vinyl on the turntable, which would turn out to be my undoing. When my parents returned home, it didn't take long for them to discover the corpse of mercy. My mother shrieked and my father groaned while I shrunk further into guilt and fear. My face was flush with heat and I was paralyzed from owning up to what really happened. At about the same moment, my father discovered the twisted sister record I had left on the turntable. Time stood still as I watched him pick it up and turn it over, slowly inspecting it as if it was something dangerous. Philip Bruce, where did this record come from? 
Whenever my parents used my full name, I knew I was in for it. I admitted to owning the record, but the subject of Mercy's death was put on hold while my mom and dad searched my bedroom. When they discovered the other albums, the gig was up. My dad marched me into the garage and slowly and ceremoniously took out his jigsaw and began to saw my records in half, one by one. He wasn't frantic or angry looking, just slow and deliberate. When they were all neatly destroyed, we went back into the house and he sat down next to me and calmly explained that the music I was listening to was inspired by Satan and it was not to enter the house. He said it was because he loved me and that Jesus loved me, so he was protecting me. My head was still spinning with guilt about killing the cockatiel, but I couldn't own up to it. It was just too much. Later that week, my father explained that there was a special church service that night and we were going. Our church was anything but orthodox. The pastor would break into speaking in tongues during his sermons. People would shout and dance with their arms in the air. Sometimes members of the congregation would interrupt the sermon, shouting in tongues, and then moments later, another member would translate the prophecy. In my mind, it was always extremely disconcerting, but my father and mother seemed enraptured, so I did my best to stay calm. The special service my father had mentioned was for the youth of the church. There was a guest speaker who was an expert about the evils of rock music. There was a slideshow presentation to go along with it, and the man began to break down the symbolism and lyrical content of all my favorite music. As he began to describe Satan's influence over the musicians and anyone that listened to them, I began to feel the fire of guilt about Mercy's death. Fear overwhelmed my young mind, and I was terrified of being cast into a lake of fire for eternal damnation. There was a palpable weight on my neck and back pushing me down, bowing my head in shame. As all the negative emotions were building to a crescendo, the pastor offered a solution. Ask Jesus into your heart, and you would be forgiven and receive the gift of eternal life. Some force overcame me when he said that anyone who wants to receive the gift should get up and walk to the front of the church. It was as if I was a puppet on a string staggering along with a handful of other kids. As we reached the front of the stage, the pastor put his hand on the head of the kid in front of me and he passed out and violently fell backwards and into the arms of his parents. Time slowed down when it was my turn and the weight of the man's hand on my head was an unnatural force. When he removed his hand, I didn't pass out or fall, but I definitely felt something lift from within me. It was a dizzy and weightless release, so I suspect it was what Christians referred to as being born again. I wish I could say that life became easy and uncomplicated after my conversion, but that wasn't the case. At 13 and 14 years old, I couldn't be sure about what I was feeling inside. I desperately wanted to do the right thing according to our church and the Bible, but my natural instinct was drawn towards rock music, chasing girls, and surfing with my friends. 
I tried to listen to Christian rock music. I attended weekly church and Bible studies, and I prayed to God that I wouldn't be sent to hell. I get the sense that my father could see that I was struggling. So as the summer of 1985 approached, he sat down with me and handed me a pamphlet that said Teen Missions International. He explained that by serving the Lord through missionary work, that I would experience the full blessings from above. Teen Missions' motto was Get Dirty for God. As I perused the pamphlet and the list of countries, the words Egypt and Israel leapt from the page. It was as if I were being coerced again by some unforeseen force. Instead of surfing with my friends that summer, I signed up for that bizarre group. Before I knew what was happening, I was on my way to Teen Mission's Missionary Boot Camp. Hundreds of kids between the age of 13 and 19 arrived to Merritt Island, Florida, to a jungle-like setting with a giant circus tent in the center. We were divided into teams of 12 to 20 kids according to what country we would be working in. There was an obstacle course that was fit for military training. Each station had a different Bible theme. As we high-stepped into car tires, we would shout the 10 plagues of Egypt. Blood, flies, lice, frogs, disease, boils, hail, locusts, darkness, death. While helping each other up and over the rope wall, we would recite the books of the Bible in order. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. As we swung across the mud pit of despair, we would shout down Satan to get away. We would call upon the army of angels to help us over the final wooden wall. It was intense, and we had to see to it that everyone on our team made it to the end, despite of their fitness level. After the obstacle course, there was campsite training, digging latrines, cleaning the surrounding area of brush and debris, washing our clothes and bodies with buckets. In the evenings under the giant circus tent, all of the teams would meet and there would be intense singing and preaching sermons. After mealtime with our team, there were more Bible studies and Bible verse memorization quizzes. During the entire two-week training camp, there was a strict dress code with jeans and work boots to be worn at all times without exception. When our team arrived in Cairo, Egypt in June of 1985, there were geopolitical undertones that we did not anticipate. The Yom Kippur War between Egypt and Israel took place less than a dozen years previously, and the peace treaty was only signed five years before our arrival. There were military guards armed with machine guns at any bridge or public place. Our handlers at the small Christian orphanage where we were to be working explained to our team that it was best not to mention our trip to Israel in the coming months and also it was wise not to talk about our Christian faith outside the walls of the orphanage. Our task was to reinforce the crumbling 12-foot wall that circled the grounds of the entire place, safely shielding it from the Muslim majority that dominated the country. Many of the children in the orphanage were given up by unwed mothers because of intense pressure from their fundamentalist Muslim faith. Our team woke up at dawn and half of us manually mixed cement with shovels. The other half of the team laid the bricks with hand trowels. After lunch, we would switch roles. For six weeks, six days a week, in over 100 degree desert temperatures, we reinforced their walls. 
At lunch, there were more Bible studies and verse memorization quizzes. Up until that moment, and for the next 35 years, I have never been exposed to the intensity of work like that summer in Egypt. When we finally finished our mission, it was time that we got to explore the traditional tourist sites. We visited the Nile River, the Great Pyramids, the Sphinx, King Tut's tomb, the Valley of the Kings, and the Luxor Museum. Although it was a life-changing experience, I'm not sure my 14-year-old brain could fully appreciate it, and I was constantly daydreaming of my life back at the beach and riding waves with my friends. When we crossed the Suez Canal and into Israel, things got even more intense. Israel, in 1985, was blanketed with a sense of paranoia. The country is surrounded on all sides with other countries that despise them. America had provided Israel's military with F-15 Eagle fighter jets. And in 1979, the first jet operated by an Israeli pilot scored its first kill in a dogfight with a Syrian aircraft. We were constantly reminded of the dangers that Jews and Christians faced on a day-to-day -day basis. Our team of teen missionaries was constantly chaperoned by Israeli handlers while we walked in the footsteps of Jesus and visited all the biblical landmarks. We toured the Wailing Wall, where Hasidic Jews bowed in prayer and stuffed tiny scrolls with their prayers into the cracks in the wall. At the Dome of the Rock, we removed our shoes and were overwhelmed by the grandeur and significance of that holy site. It was quite emotional to see Golgotha, the hill where Christ was crucified, and his empty tomb. On our last night in Israel, we were herded into a classroom where our team was to be debriefed. It was to prepare us for our return to America and entering back into normal society. At the back of the room, a strange-looking guy in his 20s kept staring at me. He was definitely Israeli, but he was dressed oddly. He had the t-shirt made famous in the MTV George Michael video with bold black letters that said, Choose Life. He had a puka shell necklace and oversized board shorts. He looked sort of like a surfer, but more exaggerated. When the meeting was over, the guy walked straight up to me and said, Hello, Philip. I hear you are a surfer. My name is Yuval. I am also a surfer. I bet you didn't know that we surf here in Israel in the Mediterranean Sea. There is someone I would like you to meet. He had an off-putting and confrontational demeanor, but for some reason, I was compelled to follow him down the hallway and into another classroom a few doors down. Inside that classroom, behind a tall wooden desk, sat a fierce-looking man in his mid-forties. He had wavy black hair, a salt-and-pepper beard, and piercing eyes, punctuated by a deep crease curving into the side of his nose. He didn't stand when we entered the room and gestured with his head for us to sit at the desks in front of him. Once we sat down, he stood up and walked slowly toward me. The peach and orange light setting behind the Mount of Olives provided a dramatic backlight as he stopped and looked down at me. He was wearing all khaki clothing, which had a military vibe, but without any of the stars or bars that would indicate that. Greetings, Philip. My name is Lieutenant Elazar Oberman. Something about this man sent my mind racing in panic. Had I done something wrong? He sensed my fear and said, Relax, Philip. Yuval tells me that you're a surfer. We also know that your father works at NASA, 
and your great-great-grandfather Max Goldreich was from Czechoslovakia and immigrated to America. He was also Hebrew. We share the same heritage. This did nothing to calm my nerves. I am told you are the best in your group at memorizing the Bible verses. I nodded slowly. Yes, very nice. Can you say to me from the book of Numbers, chapter 13, verse 2? It was as if somebody instantly put the answer into my head as I recited. Send out for yourself men, so that they may spy out the land of Canaan, which I am going to give to the sons of Israel. You shall send a man from each of their father's tribes, every one a leader among them. An odd smile slowly spread across the man's face. Yes, yes, very good. America and Israel work together to keep the world a safer place. Do you understand, Philip? It was as if the air in the room was being sucked toward this man. I couldn't manage to take a deep breath. There may come a time when God calls upon you, when America and Israel call upon you. You may not be strong now, but someday you will be. Surfing can open many doors for you around the world. Look for the signs. Listen for my word. I couldn't breathe. The light in the room had grown dim. As the lieutenant's last words rhythmically escaped his mouth, the room began to spin into blackness. When I returned home to Florida in 1986, my surfing abilities suffered a bit from spending the entire summer away from the ocean. My friends had improved in leaps and bounds and had begun to compete in the lively Eastern Surfing Association amateur contests. The first time I went to watch a surf contest, I was sitting with my friends when one of them pointed to a surfer just popping up onto a wave. That's Slater, he said. What happened next was mind-bending. This small, dark-skinned figure proceeded to fly across the face of the wave with speed and control I had never before seen from anyone, adults included. He smashed into the oncoming section with fins and spray fanning out in a small explosion. I was speechless. Kelly Slater was on another level above anyone else. It's been like that since he was 12 years old. It's undeniable. Our group of friends from Mindy Atlantic naturally mixed with his crew from Cocoa Beach. There was a rivalry, of course, but he was so far past anyone in ability that most of us conceded to being friends first and then fans. There was an air around him, a well-earned hype, and it was building. Kelly's brother Sean was a few years older than him, he had the same raw and natural talent like Kelly, but there was a rough edge to him, and he loved to party. For me, there seemed something dangerous about him, and it always made me feel a bit on edge. One Sunday afternoon at a surf contest in Cocoa Beach, Sean came walking up the beach with one of those bright yellow Sony boomboxes. He was blaring some loud music, and he zeroed in on me and sat down. Listen to this, you pussy. This is the cult. From the first note, there was something about that song, Wildflower. It sounded raw and dangerous. It triggered something within me. For some reason, hard rock always has a hypnotic effect on me. I was unexplainably drawn towards darkness. I wanted to stand on the edge of the abyss and stare into it. It stirred feelings inside my young mind that permeated into my psyche. 
and did battle with my Christian conscience. Things were happening fast for me and my group of friends. We had discovered that the pursuit of the ladies could be almost as fun as riding waves. We began to lose our virginities, each one of us wearing it like a badge. Much like my competitive surfing ability, I was usually the last one to get hit. But in this case, Slater was unexplainably the last one among us to lose his virginity. In 1987, the journalist Matt George was doing a profile on Kelly for Surfer Magazine. He flew to Cocoa Beach and tagged along our group of friends for an entire week, embedding himself in our clan and clandestinely taking notes about everything. Our group of friends had found a gal willing to give it up to Slater. It wasn't difficult to find her. Most girls swarmed around him at any party or surf contest, but up until that moment, there seemed to be an impermeable and invisible layer of protection surrounding the future champ. I guess he just decided for himself that it was time, so they unceremoniously paired off and casually borrowed a friend's bedroom. For some reason, it was like a team sport as we all wrestled for a position next to the door and pressed our ears against it hoping to hear something while suppressing our laughter. It seemed normal and abnormal at the same time. There was no doubt that Matt George was having a field day taking his notes. By 1989, it had become evident that I wasn't going to make it as a professional surfer. While Kelly and a few others from my crew were qualifying for the ASP World Tour, I couldn't even make more than a few heats at local pro-am contests on the East Coast. After I graduated from high school, my dad gave me an ultimatum. Find and attend a college or get a job. That was a straightforward proclamation. Shortly after I was faced with that decision, I had a vivid dream. I hadn't thought about Lieutenant Oberman since our meeting in 1985, but in my dream, he appeared standing over me as I lay on the floor. The sound from his voice dipped in and out. I will tell you one thing. If I tell it to you and it comes true, then will you believe me? I only managed to grunt. The Nazarene University was once the Theosophical Society. Beware the lies from Ascended Masters. When I woke up, the dream didn't mean much to me. But later that day, I read an article in a surf magazine titled The Best Universities for Surfers. Coming in at number three was Point Loma the Nazarene, Nazarene University. University. I was astonished to learn that PLNU was a small private Christian school that was located on a cliff with an ocean view with some of Southern California's most pristine reef breaks. The application process was fairly simple, except for an important caveat. Every student had to sign a contract. It was a strict moral code which prohibited drinking alcohol, smoking, cursing, premarital sex, lying, and dancing. Students were also required to attend an entire school chapel church service three times a week for an hour. These strict requirements kept the size of the school understandably small, because not many 18-year-old freshman students that attend university in San Diego, California were willing to agree to repress their natural desires. The quality of the waves attracted a small tribe of surfers willing to make that bargain. 
The other larger majority of students were from the Midwest, where the Nazarene Church was founded, and they directed a steady stream of their innocent congregation to attend this enclave of liberal arts. The student body was naturally tribal. The surfers were drawn to each other, and the quality of the surf made the strict rules bearable. The conservative Nazarene devotees, nicknamed Nazbos, mostly avoided us, and we enjoyed our autonomy and did our best to play by the moral codes, with the exception of a few rebels. True to my conflicted nature, I was of course drawn to the darkest personality in the student community. Kainoa was the son of a Southern California doctor, who seemed to have ended up at the university as a form of punishment. He was a metalhead who loved Metallica and Slayer, and seemed to be doing everything possible to get kicked out of the school. We used to meet outside of mandatory chapel and wait to the last moment to enter. We sat in the back row and shared an earbud each and listened from his Walkman, which was always cranked up to 11. He was quite fond of Slayer's lyrics and used to give his own sermon about their meaning simultaneously with the university's pastor. I found out later that the campus of Point Loma University has a sort of hidden history. In 1897, Catherine Tingley established a utopian cultural and communal experiment called the Universal Brotherhood and Theosophical Society. Theosophy was a blend of science and religion invented by a bizarre Russian woman named Helena Blavatsky. It was one of the first New Age religions and it blended Asian philosophies like Buddhism and Hinduism with a homegrown American mind-over-matter philosophy and occult beliefs like clairvoyance and communication with spirits. Blavatsky traveled to Tibet where she claimed to be trained by ascended masters with these special powers. Catherine Tingley was inspired by Blavatsky to buy the land in Point Loma and start a progressive commune which placed strong emphasis on cultural pursuits including music, dance, drama, literature, and visual art. The Theosophical Society at Loma Land attracted eccentric and rich devotees, most notably the sporting goods magnate and first commissioner of Major League Baseball, Albert Spaulding. It also attracted constant controversial headlines because Theosophy was openly anti-Christian and also gave women complete equal status to men. So naturally, the press and rumor mill in San Diego and Los Angeles was deeply suspicious. There was a yoga school attended by rich children and refugees from Cuba, which sparked other rumors of slave labor and inhumane conditions. The children were only allowed to see their parents once a week for an hour. There was a Greek amphitheater built to the exact specifications from the original plans in ancient Greece. Catherine Tingley put on elaborate renditions of Shakespeare plays with intricate costumes. The only three buildings on campus that remained when I attended PLNU were the amphitheater, the music hall, and Spalding's mansion which has an enormous purple glass dome on top and is now an administration building for the university. The day before spring break of our sophomore year at PLNU, 
Kai and I met outside of chapel at our usual spot. He had a more devious than normal smile that day as he sat down on a skateboard and slowly nodded his head, no doubt to some heavy metal music from the Walkman. As I approached, he held out his hand as if to shake mine and dropped a small Ziploc bag filled with dried brown caps and stems. Let's trip balls and skate, was all he said. The temptation to try something new has rarely caused me hesitation. So instead of thinking about it, I ripped open the bag and stuffed my mouth full of the bitter mushrooms. We chased it down with some chocolate and Gatorade. And instead of checking into chapel, we made a U-turn and started carving on our skateboards around the beautiful campus. About a half hour later, we started to feel the effects and wound up in front of Miras Hall, the administration building with the giant purple glass dome. You ever been inside that joint? Asked Kai. Nope, I said. Because it was the day before spring break and most of the students had left early to get home to the Midwest, the place was nearly abandoned. And for some reason, the building was unlocked and unattended. Buildings older than 100 years tend to have an eerie feeling about them, even without the aid of psilocybin. And so, we were off to a surreal start. A spiral staircase wound upwards in the center of the octagonal-shaped building and up toward the second floor and the purple dome. The upper level had deep, rust-colored carpet that seemed to sink around our feet as we crept towards the light from the dome. It was as if sound was being funneled into a vacuum vortex at the center of the room. There was a solo wooden chair, bathed in prism-bent light, dividing the shadows into symmetrical patterns. Kai made a beeline directly toward the throne-like chair and sat down. He closed his eyes, put his headphones on, and pressed play on the Walkman. He lifted his chin up towards the ceiling. He was flooded in purple light and began to sing along to Slayer. Bastard sons, beget your cunting daughters, promiscuous mothers with your incestuous fathers, ingrate souls condemned for all eternity. As Kai became enraptured in heavy metal bliss, I felt a presence behind me. I whirled around and was startled to see a man, or what seemed to be the essence of a human, something between a hologram and flesh and blood. I couldn't be sure because of the state I was in. I was paralyzed in the carpet. I blinked twice and took a second look. He was dressed in a suit with a strange collar. He had a high forehead and slick hair neatly parted on the side. He had deep-set eyes that looked like he hadn't slept. Philip, I will tell you one thing. If I tell it to you and it comes true, then will you believe me? He was soft-spoken and rhythmic. I was too shocked to answer, and Kai just kept singing loudly behind us. Underneath the left paw of the Great Sphinx of Giza, there exists a chamber. It's a hall of records that contains the recorded history of Atlantis. It was put there by the last of the fourth root race to escape the continent before it was swallowed by the Great Flood. In a past life, your ancestors mated with the Atlanteans. Some people called them the Nephilim. As soon as he said the word Nephilim, he vanished. I was startled as Kai slapped me on the back and said, Let's bail. When I asked, Did you see that man? 
Kaida smiled. What man? Never mind, I said. Point Loma University sits on a cliff with a view of some of San Diego's most popular reef breaks. One of those surf spots is considered by many to be the most notorious and fiercely guarded local spots on the entire west coast. New Break, or Noobs as it's called, is protected by a group of older surfers that grew up in Point Loma who could best be described as bridge trolls. They're grumpy, arrogant, angry, and hostile to anyone they don't recognize. They shout at people in their own dialect, shrieking phrases like, Beat it, kook! No goon cords! Go home, Nasbo! Usually if you go there alone and just ignore them, they only burn you on waves, but mostly leave you alone after a bit of verbal abuse. The wave is worthy of protection. It's fast and long, with intense barreling sections and an inside bowl that bends inward into a safe channel. After 10 years enduring their bullshit, in late August of 2001, something snapped inside of me when one of the younger brothers of a local tackled me off my board. When he challenged me to go to the beach, something clicked inside, and so we made our way to the shore. We both threw our boards down and squared off. After a few wild swings and no connections, two things became apparent. He was a head taller than me and outweighed me by 50 or more pounds, and neither of us had any fighting experience. When I remarked, this is stupid, let's just surf. He looked over at my board, jogged over to it and lifted his heel above it, and brought it down swiftly, snapping it cleanly in half. It was my favorite board, and at the time I instantly saw red. I rushed over and punched him square in the throat. He gagged a bit and staggered, but gained control, and then punched me clean and square on the bridge of my nose between my eyes. I saw stars, and when I regained normal vision, I saw that there was a crowd gathered on the sand. They quickly closed in on me and began pelting me with rocks, fists, and feet. After what seemed like minutes, Someone lifted me up and out of the fray in a chokehold. It turned out there was an off-duty cop in the lineup, and he dragged me up the beach into his car, where he proceeded to handcuff me and call it in on the radio. I was the one who's getting arrested. If you've ever been arrested, then imagine that uncomfortable and fearful situation being magnified by the fact that you're wearing a wetsuit. I was sandy, bloody, barefoot and freezing cold when they booked me that Friday afternoon. It was an overwhelming feeling of vulnerability as I caught the attention of everyone else locked in the holding cell. The guards thought it was hilarious that I wouldn't be able to see a judge until Monday. I sat on the floor of the cell for the next 10 hours with my arms wrapped around my knees and tried to keep the blood circulating in my bare feet. At about 2 a.m. I heard a knock on the cell door. A guard called out, Goodrich, it's your lucky night. You posted bail. I was too bewildered and disoriented to ask any questions. So I leapt up without looking back and followed him down the hallway. Before I could fully understand what was going on, I was handed a few papers to sign and ushered through the fire door that emptied onto Front Street in downtown San Diego. The street was void of any traffic at that time of night, but standing a few paces past the door, stood a solitary figure. 
As I approached, I recognized the deep crease between his eyes. His arms were folded across his chest, and he stood up abnormally straight. Looking down at me with a scowl was the lieutenant. I was stunned and confused again, and I began to stammer. How did you... He held up his hand. Quiet, Philip. Let's go. That powerless feeling I felt back when I was 14 crept up my spine as I followed him down Front Street and into the parking lot in his black SUV. As we drove down the 5 freeway toward Ocean Beach, it was minutes of silence before he finally spoke. Your time has come, Philip. The signs are all around you, but your eyes are closed. Your country needs you. Israel needs you. No doubt you have heard what's going on in Indonesia. I had no idea what he was talking about, but I didn't say so. Muslim terrorists aren't the only problem in Southeast Asia. Some of the Indonesian Christians are fed up with having their churches bombed and have formed militias. In May, Christian militants invaded the Muslim village of Armanis in central Java. They killed 165 villagers over the course of two days, chasing them into the jungles with guns and machetes. We know they are planning more retaliations. Something about that information rang a bell with me, as I remembered a brief news story about it. He went on to explain that the son of the pastor of the militant's church was a surfer and runs a guest house in front of a popular surf spot in Java. He wanted me to go there and make friends, attend their church, and surf with the local kids and earn their trust. They needed to know the leadership structure and the names of anyone involved all the way to the top. As we reached my apartment, he handed me a plain manila folder closed with a rubber band. All of the necessary details are on site, along with your flights and some spending cash. Do not disappoint us, Philip. These are soft targets. There is no need to get involved further than gathering names and information. Can you accept this? I slowly nodded. I am going back to New York City to finalize some details. As I slowly walked to my apartment, I still felt under his spell, and it was as though I didn't have a choice in the matter. During the next few days, in the first week of September, I went over the contents of the folder. Everything was simple and straightforward. It had driver's license photos of the son of the pastor and the name and directions to the guest house. The plane ticket was out of LAX and dated October 1st, 2001, with the destination of Jakarta via Singapore. I was nervous but excited at the same time. It seemed my world in San Diego was collapsing in slow motion, so I had that sense of nothing left to lose. On the morning of September 11th, I was sound asleep at dawn when I heard pounding on my bedroom door. My roommate, who was a professional soccer player, had returned home from training and was shouting at me. Look at this shit on TV. They're bombing New York. I staggered into the living room in a daze, just as the second plane smashed into the other tower. I couldn't be sure if it was a movie or something that actually happened because my roommate was a notorious prankster. Once I realized it was actually happening, I stared at disbelief along with the rest of the world.
There was an instantaneous shift in the future of the planet as people started to process what it meant when the United States gets attacked by a foreign country. There was anger and fear brewing in America's population. While some called for immediate retaliation, others mourned the loss of their loved ones, while the brave first responders sprang into action to clean up the devastation. I kept waiting to hear from the lieutenant about my future travel plans, but the call never came. It was the week before I was meant to leave when I was skimming the newspaper and I saw a headline that grabbed my attention. Israel mourns its first casualties in World Trade Center collapse, was what it read. Among the dead were Israeli businessman Elazar Oberman. I kept staring at the name in disbelief. I read the sentence over and over again, and I tried to process how I felt. I should have felt sad, but there was no flood of emotion. Instead of sadness, a feeling of calm empowerment began to rise within me. It felt like my world was expanding, and I could reach out and claim the freedom. I looked at my plane ticket and at my surfboard bag and my backpack with clothing and bare essentials strewn across the floor. Indonesia was still calling me but not Jakarta, not Java, and there was definitely not any other sense of responsibility. I had always wanted to go to Nios, and so without hesitation, I made the decision. And so began the next chapter of my life in these last 20 years. I want to thank you for listening to a special April Fool's edition of A Surfer's Path. You didn't actually believe that I was recruited by a secret Israeli Mossad agent and subjected to trauma-based MK Ultra mind control, did you? Or that I met the ghost of the sleeping prophet, Edgar Casey, America's most prolific Christian clairvoyant and firm believer in the lost continent of Atlantis? As for the rest of my story, that's mostly how I remember it. If you enjoy this podcast, then please leave a rating and write a review. Stay on the path and never quit surfing.